Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 313 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. And also, welcome to 2020. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mecha Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? And Happy New Year! Well, happy new year to you too. Um, how am I? I'm I'm okay. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm fairly in holiday mode, so I'm not probably going to make an awful lot of sense for this particular Me episode. Too. You know, um, summer it does something to your brain. Well, yeah. you just you know, like it's been. I've just been eating paddle pops, and you know, I, know. I just I don't Watching really Netflix. I've mm. been eating pure pops. That's what we have here in the Northern Beaches. I'm addicted. Right. Good. That's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Yeah, we're we're both kind of in laid-back mode, but we want to say Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We do, and we also want to inspire you to get started because even though we are still lying around, you can start thinking about what you're going to do this year. So that's why we thought we'd pop out a little episode here, have a bit of a chat, share some writerly knowledge through someone else's amazing experience yes. and hopefully it will kind of get you, like I do understand that you're probably not really thinking too much about, you know, your, your plans at this stage unless, mm. of course, you're on a summer break and you've taken yourself off to write somewhere, in which case go you. I yes, hope you're doing you. amazingly well. Um, but, yeah, so we just thought that we would um, just, you know, remind you that thinking time is also part of the writing process. So even as you are eating your paddle pops and lying on a beach or whatever it is that you may be doing, um, you can still be thinking about the uh, the things that you are going to do this year or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're working on at the moment. Um, obviously, when it actually comes to the writing time, we've talked so many times about making time to write and doing mm. all of that kind of stuff. So that is all going to need to be factored in at some point. But for now, you could probably just be dreaming about your next brilliant Sitting on the beach. of creative fiction. Yeah. I want to go mm. sit on the beach. So what we'll do is we'll plunge straight into our competition for this year. Our first competition for this year is we have three copies of the book 488 Rules for Life by Kitty Flanagan, the very clever (laughs) Kitty Flanagan, who is a comedian, author, actor. Um, I love her character on Utopia. Do you watch Utopia? I do. So good. I know. Anyway, 488 Rules for Life is Kitty Flanagan's way of making the world a more pleasant place to live, providing you with the antidote to every annoying little thing. These rules are not made to be broken. It's not a self-help book because it's not you who needs help. It's other people, whether they're walking and texting, asphyxiating you on public transport with their noxious noxious perfume cloud or leaving one useless square of toilet paper on the roll. A lot of people just don't know the rules. What started as a joke on Kitty Flanagan's popular segment on on ABC TV's The Weekly is now a quintessential reference book with the power to change society or at least make it a little bit less irritating. (laughs) Excellent. Very Kitty Flanagan. If you would like to win one of three copies, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. And while we're still in laid-back summer mode, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? (laughs) 
<laughs> what do you think? The only reason I'm ready for the word of the week is that I'm too lazy to run away. But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thalassophobia. Thalassophobia. That's T H A L A S S O P H O B A B I A. Thalassophobia. Do you know what so that it's is? Obviously, well, it's obviously a fear of something, but I don't know what a thalasso is except for maybe a, I don't know, some kind of milkshake or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay. This refers to an intense and persistent fear of the sea and sea travel. Hmm. Now, this is different to hmm. aquaphobia, which is the fear of water itself. But this right. is specifically a fear of the sea and sea travel, thalassophobia. Okay. Now, I actually just came across this word because um, it was part of the quiz. I don't know, for those of you who haven't found the quiz on The Age or SMH, it's every day. So I've ever since I've discovered it, I've become addicted. It's like my morning thing and you go to the quiz and you can ask the question and then you tap a button and then the answer appears. So there's no chance that you, you know, sneak the answer. And so just look for the quiz on SMH and um, The Age. Mm, okay. You sound so excited. It's really exciting. I really um, like it. I'm very, very excited for you. It's a you. trivia quiz. It's like There's like 10 questions every day, so you can test your intelligence every day. Okay, good. <laughs> I hope you're more excited about our writer in residence than you are about my word of the week because, as promised, our writer in residence, our first interview for the year is none other than with Tony Jones, the acclaimed journalist and now novelist um, and, of course, TV presenter. He is the host of Q&A. He uh, is former host of Late Line, has covered uh, issues, so a wide range of issues as a foreign cor correspondent but also as a journalist in Australia and his latest novel is In Darkness Visible. Let's have a listen to Tony. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. It's a pleasure, Valerie. Congratulations on In Darkness Visible. For those readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? <laughs> sure. Um, well, I sometimes describe it like this. It's a sort of uh, Romeo and Juliet tale that's also a thriller uh, but imagine that Romeo and Juliet didn't die at the end of the story but actually um, had a terrible separation that kept them apart for 30 years and then 30 years later they come back together to sort out their differences in a very dangerous environment and at least partly in a war crimes prison. So um, I know that's not an exact description of what it's about, but there is a sense in here that uh, we've got a very dangerous romance happening at a time of war and conflict, uh, and two people who've known each other when they were in their 20s um, get separated and meet up again 30 years later. So um, if you'd like, I can describe how the story begins, which might help us. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So the story begins in the Croatian seaside town. It's the Adriatic Sea. Um, it's a, a, a Rovin. Rovin, by the way, is almost directly opposite Venice. You can actually travel on a ferry from Venice to Rovin in summer. And Rovin, indeed, was a 
Venetian city. It was built uh, as part of the Venetian trading empire. So it's very beautiful. It rises out of the water. The stone uh, surrounds it, rise out of the water, a little bit like Venice does. It sits on, uh, on, a, on a beautiful boat harbor surrounded by shining limestone. Uh, the boat harbor has a fishing fleet and beyond that an island. And of course, there's a flourishing tourist industry. And one of those people plying the tourist trade in an old Venetian speedboat is a guy called Marin Kadic, um, who we've met from my previous novel. He's now much older. He's in his 50s. He's a Croatian-Australian. He's living in Robin under an assumed name. His first passengers of the day are kind of mysterious and weird and start questioning him in ways that make him a little bit upset. And then later in the day, in the evening, as he walks back to his apartment, he starts to think something's up. Some, something is disturbing him. He goes to his apartment, which overlooks the beautiful boat harbour, and he sits there and has a cigarette, goes to bed. And then in the middle of the night, a group of masked men um, with heavily armed masked men break into his apartment. Uh, they beat him up. They inject him with uh, a sedative and they take him away shackled and hooded um, to, a, to an aircraft which flies to The Hague, where he's then put in the war crimes prison, uh, about to face uh, a war crimes trial. Uh, the Hague in Holland has this war crimes prison in a place called Schervingen, uh, which is a little coastal section of uh, The Hague, the capital city of Holland and it has an international law um, well it has a specialty in international law and there's this war crimes prison there sometime later um, his old girlfriend now also in her 50s she she hasn't seen him for 30 years uh, gets some emails from a mutual friend um, that indicate um, this fellow who's in an orange suit with a hood over his head and then later uh, unhooded and shown in a hospital room rather bruised. She thinks she knows who it is. She's pretty sure it's the guy she knew 30 years ago and she can see that he's been put in jail for war crimes and she goes to investigate and in doing so, uh, she puts her own life at risk but she finally meets up again with a man she knew at university 30 years earlier. Mm. And of course, it also spans, I mean, the novel spans different timelines, different points of view, and it's a fascinating plot. What came to you first? Like what sparked the idea for the story? Yeah, there's a bit of a history to it. Um, there's a kind of origin story for the mm. two books, actually, because um, In Darkness Visible is the sequel to The 20th Man, which is the first novel that I wrote and in, indeed has the same uh, two characters um, in in one stage of their their strange romance, their Romeo and Juliet romance, Marin Kadich and Anna Rosen. Um, I thought about this story back in 1986 uh, really? when I went to uh, the former Yugoslavia to do a story on uh, to do a Four Corners program on uh, Nazi war criminals or fascists with war crimes in their history, who'd actually managed to come to Australia. Uh, a little bit of background there, it's quite well known these days that after the Second World War, uh, Western intelligence agencies recruited a lot of Nazis who had senior positions because they knew that uh, these guys had connections behind the Iron Curtain and could create for them networks. And in return for their work, 
um, helping uh, the Americans largely, but also MI6 and the West generally, uh, with um, infiltrating uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, they were they had their pasts and especially their war crimes cleansed from their records, and many of them made their way to third countries to start new lives uh, with these cleansed false records. Mm. Uh, a number of them came to Australia. They also went to Canada, to the United States, to Britain, and other places. But in Australia, we got a lot of such people. Um, and an old friend of mine working at the ABC called Mark Ahrens, um, who was a radio documentary maker uh, back in the mid-1980s, did a, a tremendous groundbreaking uh, five-part series called Nazis in Australia, in which he delved into the detail of, and case studies of individuals. It so shocked the government, the Hawke government at the time, mm. that they set up uh, the Special Investigations Unit uh, to, uh, to investigate whether there were indeed war criminals residing in Australia from the Second World War. And it led to, it, they changed, by the way, the uh, legislation to enable this to happen. And it led to the first war crimes trial um, in Australian history on Australian soil. Um, so that, with that in mind, <laughs> I started thinking, well, imagine, uh, imagine a family uh, in which the father was a war criminal who'd come to Australia, had children, and then those children grow up um, adopting or inheriting some of his beliefs. Uh, that was the basis of the first book, and indeed it's the underpinning essence of the second book. And on the other side of the coin, um, Anna Rosen, who's a little bit like the, if I may say this, the left brain of my old friend, the journalist Mark Ahrens, whose father was... Uh, the head of the Australian Communist Party, Lauren Aarons, uh, Laurie Aarons. Um, Anna Rosen also has uh, a father who's uh, a senior figure in the Australian Communist Party. She uh, works um, in a documentary unit at the ABC, and uh, she's a, a sort of, uh, I suppose, a groundbreaking in her time uh, feminist figure uh, on the university campus where she resides and she's a, a also an ed editor of the uh, university magazine the tribe as i call it um so she she has a a long history that's a bit similar to mark Aaron's, and of course uh, uh maron kadich has a history similar to the sons of some of the people who came to australia so it's it's kind of buried in in a sense buried history uh we know very little about these events uh, but they mm. they played a huge part in the 1960s and 70s in Australia, when indeed groups of young men, um, particularly young Croatian men, uh, were trained in Australia, uh, given military weapons and arms and sent back into the then communist Yugoslavia uh, to try and start little rebellions against mm. uh, Tito. Uh, and so um, this connection between Australia and the conflict in Yugoslavia is what triggered my thoughts about writing both of these books. So you let this idea brew for obviously a very long time and yeah. you have a primary life as a fairly high profile journalist and you're also on television. You're no doubt very busy. What was the trigger that finally prompted you to or pushed <laughs> you to yeah. to write the story as a fictional yeah. novel? Um, well, it probably had a few false starts, to be honest with you. So um, having told you that story about going to Yugoslavia in the 1980s, it turns out um, that I went as a foreign correspondent to Europe 
just after the Berlin Wall fell and so was a witness to the end of communism in Eastern Europe and ultimately to the end of communism where it began in Russia and in Moscow. Uh, and I reported on all of those things. The, um, the downside of that was um, in terrible um, internal eruptions that happened in some countries and in particular in Yugoslavia, which literally fell apart with the collapse of communism into a series of warring ethnic groups and states. Uh, and I ended up um, as a foreign correspondent covering the wars in the former Yugoslavia, particularly in Bosnia, um, Bosnia, Croatia, um, and Serbia, Kosovo later. Um, so I covered those wars. And while I did it, because I'd had the earlier idea of writing a novel based around these events, I took copious notes mm. uh, alongside my normal reporting. So I would go to a restaurant and, and record what we ate for dinner and speak to the uh, waiter about the local wines and record that and keep the menus, in fact. And everywhere I went, I would write little descriptions of the scenes around me, uh, which I kept in notepads and ultimately came came back to uh, use that um, extensive research really is very lucky. I'm glad I did it uh, yes. because it actually enables um, enabled me to go back in time and to write up scenes that happened during the war as I as I um, remembered them, uh, as I wrote about them at the time and put my fictional characters into these environments. So uh, the false start was probably in the mid-1990s when I took six months off working as an ABC journalist and actually went to live in the town of Rovin. Um, mm. that we uh, talked about earlier. And mm. I lived in an apartment very similar to the one that Marin Kadic, the fictional Marin Kadic, lives in um, above the sports bar um, with a beautiful set of shutters that opened out onto this boat harbour and looked out to the island. It was a gorgeous place. Um, I used that place as the, as the residence for my fictional character. So I picked up lots of um, information about the town. I got very interested in the history of the town of Robin when I was living there. I realized, in fact, it was um, divided. Everyone who goes there would realize this very quickly. Uh, divided between uh, Croatians and Italians. Um, that Many of the street signs were in both Croatian and Italian. The Italians called the place Rovinio. And so this little town itself had built-in kind of ethnic tensions uh, that burst out, particularly after the Second World War and led to an awful lot of Italians being expelled from the town and many of them being murdered uh, by Tito's forces after the war because they were associated with the fascist Italian state. So this little town itself had a dark history. Uh, Marin, who's obviously uh, comes from a family with a very dark history, lives in a town with its own dark history. So um, I started writing the book when I was living in Robin uh, with my wife and uh, my baby son, Cosmo, um, and um, but put it aside after a time because I did get very busy with my, um, my other work when I came back to Australia. Uh, so I put it aside for a few years and picked it up um, maybe four or five years ago and began writing seriously uh, and carving out time from my life as a journalist to actually complete this project, which is now, I think, you can say completed. Mm. So let's talk about carving out that time because you have a busy primary career and when you decided I'm going to take this seriously now, uh, I'm going to go back to it, what on a practical level did you do to fit it in? Did you carve yep. out specific times? Did you write did. in snatch times? Like, tell us how much time, like proportionately, you know, per week yep. and how you did it on a practical level. So the very first thing that I did was to give up one of my jobs. Um, oh. So I was working um, five days a week pretty much 
um, mostly in, at night, um, doing both the Late Line program, which I presented, um, and the Q&A program, which I've been doing for the past 12 years. Uh, so I gave up the Late Line program, uh, which left a lot of time in the week uh, to actually work on the book. So uh, I didn't have to carve out specific times then. I just had to make sure I was disciplined enough to work between Tuesday to the following Monday. Uh, and so for quite a long time over the past few years, I've been able to do that. And, uh, and in, in much of my writing, actually, I've done uh, at, a, at a house uh, down the south coast of New South Wales because I find it's really a good idea uh, to get out of the city and get away from the normal distractions of city life. Um, so, um, you know, we bought a house some time ago um, way down on the south coast of New South Wales and tried to spend as much time uh, of the week there, even in a normal week now, uh, as, as humanly possible because it's A, it's breathtakingly beautiful being down there and B, it's a wonderful place to write. Um, you know, there are very few distractions apart from the ocean and uh, and the bush, and um, which, of course, is one way to d distract yourself when you need a break from writing. Mm. So I want to talk about uh, the time commitment for the second book, because usually what happens, and I assume this is the case, but correct me if I'm wrong, but usually with first novels, it takes however long it takes. But then the second novel, they give you this deadline because the first novel went well and you've got to deliver the second novel in a much <laughs> shorter time yeah. than it took yeah. to write the first novel. So in this second novel, when you're down the South Coast or wherever it is that you want to write, what does your writing day look like when you are in the depths of writing, of course? So do you, are you disciplined to start a particular time? Do you have a word count target? Do you, is it quite strict or you kind of just write till you feel like you don't want to write anymore? Yeah, it's probably the last of those, really. I, I'm, really? You know, some, days I, some days I can write for many, many hours and some days only for a few hours. So I didn't, and I didn't have a disciplined target for uh, a number of words, except when I realized I was falling a little bit behind my deadline in the second <laughs> book. And then I, you know, probably wrote, um, you know, up to 2,000 words a day um, over a period of time. Of course, you, you write and then you refine. So, um, you know, those initial 2,000 words maybe come down to 1,000 words in the end um, uh, once you've done the rewriting process and gotten rid of all the extraneous rubbish that you've accidentally written. Um, so, um, yeah, I find the process of, of editing my own work very important. And then, of course, the, the, the process of working with editors um, that have been assigned to look at the manuscript, you know, equally important, if not more important. And I really trusted um, the fabulous people at Allen and Unwin. Um, those who read the book gave me suggestions uh, for elements of the plot or character elements. I listened to them very carefully. I trusted them. And uh, and it turned out that pretty much every piece of advice I got from, uh, you know, those wonderful editors was correct. Um, and I wasn't, I guess I'm not one of those authors who's so precious about the, what he's put on paper that he thinks, well, you know, that's, that's perfect. I'm not going to change that. That'd be crazy. Um, I really do trust these guys and their judgment. I, of course, I'm a relatively new novelist as well. So I'm kind of learning as I go along how to do this. And I think probably I learned a, a hell of a lot from writing the first novel. Um, I mm -hmm. think I felt 
uh, more able to uh, to cope with it, particularly complex plotting and character issues uh, in the second novel. Um, I also reduced the number of characters uh, in the second novel, so so that you could concentrate on the main characters and learn more about what they were thinking, their psychology, what motivates them. Um, mm. Those things uh, were very important to me. You know, more important in a sense than the plot, though the plot clearly drives the story um, mm. pretty clearly. So you mentioned that, you know, you kind of have to get rid of extraneous stuff, as we all do. We have to kill our darlings. Uh, as a journalist, did you have any kind of tendency to fill it with all of these useful facts that you thought that people should know? <laughs> or, like what kind of extraneous stuff did you have to cut out? And was some of it that kind of thing? Because yeah. that's yeah, what I yeah, imagine. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, journalists are, you know, pretty research reliant and look, there's no question there's a lot of um, history and research that's gone into uh, both of these novels actually um, I think the trick is to try and make that um, seamless uh, so that you are reading a story without being lectured to um, so that you you don't think oh here's the part where he explains the history of this place and it's like something that could have been carved out and put you know in the back of the book with a little um, you know you did <laughs> check out the back cover uh, or check out the uh, the section in the back and you'll find out more about the history um, I tried to make that as seamless as possible the editors helped a lot in that regard because they came to it fresh if it seemed like I was being too wordy or putting too many um, you know researched facts in um, they would saying oh, at this point maybe it looks like you've you know you're you're um, telling us too much you know show don't tell let mm. the story tell the history um so um i think that with the refinements that uh, that happened in the editing process we probably uh, got rid of a lot of that stuff you know who knows what you might find as a reader but um you know in the end i was pretty happy with the way the research oh yeah i think it's seamless it's it's it together. It, yeah, you, you obviously worked well together because um, uh, you, you, nothing is jarring in, in on that front at all. So with the with the story, there are, uh, as I've mentioned, multiple points of view. There are um, multiple timelines. Um, you know that you're in the seventies, you're in the nineties, you're in the two thousands. From a practical level when you're writing, how did you map that out? You Were you the sort of writer who kind of just, oh, it's in your head and it, you're just it's just going to spew out somehow? Or did you <laughs> have to have index cards or multiple timelines, you, you know, in a linear fashion on a whiteboard or something? How did you map that out yeah. on a practical level? Um, look, most of it I, I didn't. I, I probably wrote down, you know, the structure um, chapter by chapter and shuffled it around from time to time. I didn't put cards up or um, anything like that. I tried to do um, a lot of that in my head. Um, I would sometimes write sections out of order. Um, yeah. I, I find myself, you know, kind of inspired one morning to write about the Battle of Vukovar, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which was always going to be part of the story because Marin mm -hmm. Kadich ends up in this besieged town, which is kind of like a modern-day Stalingrad, where uh, Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. has sent a massive tank force into this town, which he's slowly crushing with artillery and aerial bombardments and rockets, uh, then, then tries to uh, crush the resistance with tanks. Um, the, the town, that is to say, the people of the town, the Croatians, have risen up and said, we don't want to be part of Yugoslavia anymore. We want our own independent state. Uh, and a small number of incredibly brave people 
uh, fought against a very large armed force and uh, held them off for nearly five months while the city around them was reduced to rubble. I'm not kidding when I say it was like a modern-day Stalingrad. The city was, which was beautiful, um, ancient, uh, ancient but beautiful, sort of mostly uh, 19th-century city was was destroyed, um, building by building, in an extraordinary act of um, uh, vengeance by um, Slobodan Milosevic and his army. Um, so, you know, I would be writing one day about, let's say, events in the 1970s, but I'd then sort of get inspired to stop, write the section on Bukovar and then sort of put re- reconstruct it, uh, put it back into the story where it's meant to be later. So I had a whole bunch of chapters and sections which I then shuffled around. Um, and somehow or other, I, I won't say that it was a scientific process or even a particularly writerly process but it was just what really struck me if I managed to get um, excited by something or had an idea maybe I some maybe I woke up in the morning having dreamed a solution to a kind of plot problem and thought oh I need to do that today Um, so it was a more random process than um, uh, than you might imagine. As someone who's worked in television a lot I mean as I was reading this I could kind of see it all happen you know like as a a telly movie or a miniseries or something. Is, yeah. Did any of that play into your writing? Are you because of that visual medium that you're so used to? Ah, uh, very much so. Um, in actual fact, I, I, I also, I, I suppose, I visualise scenes as if I were watching them on a screen to mm. some degree. Uh, uh, I had also worked for a little while in a writer's room, I must say, for um, a TV producer, bought the rights to the first book and to the second one. Uh, and we, we did uh, sort of sessions plotting out, uh, you know, what 16 hours of television would look like using these characters and the and the history. So that was sort of in the middle of me writing the the second book, I might add. So um, it was interesting to get the chance to bounce ideas off different people, uh, not only the editors, um, uh, who worked uh, on the final manuscript, but uh, the people who were, were thinking about how this would actually look as a as a as a, a televisual, um, you know, sixteen part series. Um, mm. So that was a fascinating process, and it was it, it opened up my mind a good deal um, to some issues of character, and um, and they they ended up sort of uh, being absorbed somehow somehow. Um, that process was very useful for the writing of the book. So, but but I, I'd started. This is not the case, obviously, when I wrote the first book, which is also, I think, quite visual. I just it's just the way I think about things. Mm. Um, I think, like most people who've grown up with these long form uh, television series, you kind of imagine, in a way, the book that you're writing is could easily be transformed into something like that. Mm. And so now that you are, um, the, the, your second novel is out. Are you writing your third? Yes, yes, I am. And uh, well, you may going... know that I'm about to go and give up the Q and A program yes. um, as the full time presenter. Maybe do a few programs next year. But um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to uh, live in China uh, with my wife, who's Sarah Ferguson, who's going to become the bureau chief uh, in Beijing. And this, to me, is a a massive opportunity for an adventure uh also a massive opportunity for uh, a prolonged research trip you know in the sense that i wrote notes all the way through you know that period of time when i was witnessing history back in the early 1990s i'll Mm. certainly be um you know looking at the rise of china and what they're now calling the uh, chinese century uh this incredible story i'll be looking at it you know with with that in mind 
for being able to uh, come back to all of that in the future sometime. Um, but while I'm in China, I won't be reporting. I won't have a visa uh, to be a reporter. I'll merely be an observer to history. Um, whereas in the early 1990s, I was a reporter um, yeah. on this massive historical change. So does that mean you already know what your third novel is about and is it set in China? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I mean, I, 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 I do. Um, the... Um, the central one of the central characters of the uh, of the two books, uh, Anna Rosen, uh, will uh, be uh, a key protagonist in the third book, um, which will be mostly set in Australia, and uh, much of it, in fact, will be set in the university environment um, where uh, some terrible things happened. And again, I, I guess I'm drawing uh, to a large degree on um, some personal experiences uh, that I had. Uh, I will obviously just use them as inspirations. But uh, when I was um, living in St. Paul's College um, in the, uh, in, in the uh, late 1970s, uh, some truly appalling things happened. Even more re in recent times, similar things have happened, um, but particularly uh, in relation to what now in the era of the Me Too movement, we would describe as horrific um, uh, sexual assaults on women. Um, mm. There was the murder of a woman on the side of the college oval. A police investigation of that murder focused on the college. Um, no one in the college uh, was uh, was charged, um, but obviously, you know, when a woman is murdered on the side of the oval of a university college, the the men in that college are going to be subject to um, uh, to a serious investigation. Um, and I lived through that horror. Um, I lived through the further horror of what they called the Animal Act of the Year Award when uh, uh, some lunatic um, gave a prize to um, someone else in the college who had uh, uh, brought along his girlfriend to a party with a small group of men and uh, they all ended up having sex and she claimed, I suspect she's absolutely right, uh, that it was non-consensual uh, mm. because there was a lot of uh, alcohol and possibly even drugs consumed from my understanding of it. Um, but that was a, uh, an event that led uh, uh, the university, uh, feminists in the university to march onto the St. Paul's College um, property down the main road, uh, you know, en masse, carrying signs saying things like castrate all Paul's men. Um, I didn't entirely disagree with the, uh, the possibility they should get a hold of the ones who are actually responsible and do just that, uh, even though I don't like violence or that kind of revenge. But, you know, I do understand the notion. Um, so, um, you know, th these events stuck in my mind and I'd like to be able to sort of incorporate them in a novel where um, uh, my... Uh, as I say, feisty, feminist, edgy character Anna Rosen somehow becomes involved in finding out what the hell happened. That's going to be fascinating. And for somebody who's been to parties at St Paul's, I am definitely <laughs> going to be reading that. So, <laughs> um, um, but now that you've 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 plunged into this world of fiction, you've you're you've you're successful in this world of fiction. You're not allowed to file stories from when, when you go to China. Yeah. Tell me about how it feels to be writing fiction compared to your job as a journalist. You yeah, know, well, I mean, creatively, it's obviously a lot riskier because you don't get a a kind of guaranteed paycheck. Yeah. Um, so um, look, uh, I, I will still be doing some work for the ABC. 
uh, next year. So I'm not entirely mm-hmm. cutting myself off from the organization that I've spent more than 30 years working at uh, mm-hmm. and for, and it's sort of in my blood and broadcasting is in my blood. So uh, I'll still be doing some work as a broadcaster, not in China. Um, so mm. I, I work for the foreign correspondent program a little bit and a few other things yet to be revealed. But um, uh, primarily, I'll be um, living in China. I'll be learning Chinese, um, plan to do uh, an intensive um, Mandarin course, um, which hopefully will start pretty soon after yeah. I get there. And um, I, I want to learn everything I can about the place where I'm living. But I also uh, will be spending a good deal of my time writing. But tell me about how you feel creatively when you how do write I feel? fiction. Oh, oh yes. no, okay. Uh, see. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I love it actually, probably more than journalism. Um, you, you love know, the, it more than journalism. I think so. Yes. I wow, think. I, why? I, well, I think I always had it in my sort of heart that I mean, uh, it's funny because when the book came out, um, Sarah and I were talking about it, and you know, you get this physical thing arrives in your hands, and yeah. uh, it, it means a tremendous amount. Both of us grew up. Um, with books, you know, mm. novels particularly, and so um, we we revere that perhaps more more than we revere the art of writing a good novel, perhaps more than um, than the journalism that we've spent our lives um, engaged in. Uh, so um, I've I've felt like that all my life. I also love film, and I I love the evolution, as I was mentioning earlier, to long format television, which is one of the great emerging um, kind of creative. Uh, art forms you know it's the let's say the long format television um, is the one sort of uh, the one thing that can kind of compete with the novel in terms of storytelling um, so I have I have both of those things in my head when I'm writing um, so I and I do love it I always wanted to be a filmmaker as well as a writer so when in my very early days as a Four Corners reporter I used to be um, probably you know really terrible to work with because um, I fancied myself rather as a filmmaker, uh, perhaps more so than a journalist. And a lot of the, if, if you ever had a chance to go back and have a look at the uh, archival stuff, I mean, we sometimes did reconstructions in um, in Four Corners and uh, I can remember pretending to be a director and going out with a massive crew and the number, you know, a big truck and a, and a car which had to run off the road and uh, a policeman with a gun had to shoot the person in that car and uh, mapping it out like a sort of cartoon um, and spending three nights um, uh, with, a, with a massive drama crew out filming it. That was one of the most exciting things I ever did, actually. And I, I, I think I probably could have, you know, jumped from there into making films that I not become a foreign correspondent. Well, let me guess. While you were at St Paul's College, you would buy um, uh, deep novels at Gould's at Newtown, go to the Toucan Cafe and then watch movies at the Valhalla. Would that be right? (laughs) It's amazing you mentioned the Toucan Cafe because I lived, (laughs) when I left college, I I lived in Glebe, um, Mm. a house Anna Rosen actually occupies in the fictional world. Um, In fact, she lives in the very same room uh, that I lived in, in this beautiful old uh, three-story kind of spooky house with a a witch's hat. Um, uh, And that was immediately across the road from the Toucan Cafe. So I know exactly of which you speak. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. Oh, uh, actually, before I wrap up, I I haven't asked you the most important question of all, which is what three top tips do you have for writers or for aspiring writers uh, who would love to be in a position where you are one day where they've got their fiction, their novels published? 
Well, you know, I, I suppose I could be accused of being a bit plot driven, but I would say start with your story and get a real sense of, you know, what your narrative is, what your narrative is going to be, how it's going to begin, how it's going to unfold and, and likely how it's going to end. I know a lot of writers don't do that, um, but nonetheless, if you're starting out, it's a pretty smart idea to have in your head a fully formed story, at least something you can build on. Um, so uh, even if it's kind of sketchy, if you kind of know how it begins and you think you know how it ends, uh, then getting from one point to the other is a practical um, consideration. If you can write, <laughs> it helps a lot. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it remains to be seen whether people think that I've, I've been successful at, at that, but uh, I have tried very hard to, uh, to turn myself into a novelist and actually putting a lot of eggs into that basket. So, uh, so be determined. Uh, think about your characters. Uh, think about you know. Think about them really deeply. Actually, uh, think about what they would do under circumstances very different to the ones you live in yourself. Because you don't want to write entirely about you know things that happen in your own life. You want to project yourself into the minds of others. Um, I project projected myself into the minds of people with very different cultural backgrounds to myself and of course writing a female character is an added mm. challenge for a male author um i i'm i'm told by um some you know female readers that i really respect like anna funder um the novelist and writer uh that that i that i did that pretty well and you know that's one of the greatest compliments i could possibly get mm. um well, I think also when you read a book and there's nothing that makes you that that is jarring because as you the, the right word is seamless, then you've achieved your goal, right? So, congratulations on that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. Really appreciate it. Valerie, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our eight-week course, Novel Writing Essentials, focuses on getting your manuscript off to the best possible start. Whether you've already started your opening chapters or just have a story ID, this course will help you shape the beginning of your novel through weekly lessons and workshopping in a supportive online environment. In doing so, you'll avoid potential mistakes down the track and meet the course goal of getting your first 20,000 words of your novel in the bag. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor and classmates providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel essentials. That's writerscentre.com.au slash novel essentials. There you go, Tony Jones. So always great to, you know, this is such a great job. We get to interview the most interesting people, don't we, Al? We do. It is It is actually a major highlight for me that we get major. to talk to so many interesting people. And we get to – the thing I like about it yes. is that you just get to ask the questions that yeah. you just know. Like if you want to know the answer, then yep. you know that other people also want to know the answer. So that's what I sure. um, that's what I like most about it. It's always the best part of – I just remember like when I was working as a freelance journalist that one of the best aspects of the job was that whatever I was having struggles with – particularly once I had children and they were causing me dramas, I would write a story about it, which would then yes. allow me to contact the top 
experts in their field about this particular thing Mm. and I would ask them the questions because obviously if I was going through this, whatever this thing was, and other people would also be going through it and I got all the answers that I needed. It was just like a cunning plan to actually educate myself, yep. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Now, if you want to kick off 2020 with a fantastic writing community, then make sure you check us out on Facebook. The listener community is over at So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. Just search for that on Facebook and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. And there's some fantastic conversations going around, right, Al? Well, I've got a, I'm, I've got one here, especially for Angela Bon. Now, Angela mm. Bon posted in the group on December the 3rd. So we are talking for, I've given her four weeks here. So she's been, it was four weeks ago, December the 3rd. And she announced, because we always talk about accountability and how, how much, how motivating accountability can be. And so I thought, well, now's a good time for us to talk about it because here we are, you know, first couple of weeks of January, we're we're all right. This is going to be the year, right? This is the year that you're going to do whatever the thing is that you want to do with your writing. And Angela um, put out into the universe on December the 3rd at 6.37 p.m. Mm. Tuesday, 3rd of December, 2019. Today is the day I write. Just want to announce this to the universe for me and anyone else who may be scrolling through Facebook aimlessly at the moment. Now, Angela did a terrific um, a creative writing course with Nicole Hayes, which in Melbourne, which of course is brilliant. Nicole is an amazing presenter amazing. Um, and teacher. So if you are in Melbourne and you get the opportunity to go and do that course with her, go because it's, it's great. A, it's an, And it's over at the convent at the Australian Writers' Centre in Collingwood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she did it a while ago and then she put it all away because nerves and self-doubt got hold of her and held her creativeness at ransom. So she went to, you know, um, various people. She had a bit of a chat with the person she calls Miss Psych Lady, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Um and she's done countless sessions with Miss Psych Lady and she's ready to write. So she um announced it into the group and, you know, a lot of people responded to that post with, you know, go you, you can do it, lots of advice, Mm -hmm. Um, other people just going, yep, today's the day, I'm going to start with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to give a big shout out to Angela because, you know, on the day that she announced, of course, I I put, you know, go you, I was, Mm -hmm. you know, there for it. But I just want you to to let you know, Angela, that I haven't forgotten you. I know that you're out there. I know you're doing it. I'm hoping that, you know, even if you're only managing a hundred words here, a hundred words there that you are, you know, continuing with your project. Remember that it's going to be little bit by little bit by little bit that this thing comes together, but you know, we're with you. And I just, that's what the whole podcast community is about. We're with you. And check in with us and let us know how you're going. Let us know. Yeah. Let Mm. us know how you, how you're traveling. So, um, I'm hoping Angela's listening to this. She may get it, you know, in February when she actually comes back to listening to podcasts, which is, you know, (laughs) what I'm suspecting most people will do. But anyway, um, you know, uh, we're, we're here for you. That's what I wanted to say. Absolutely. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of this week's episode. We hope that you've uh, kicked off a great start to 2020. Are you going to say 2020 or 2020? I stumble every time. I'm going to say 2020 because 2020 is just too long. It's crazy. Mm. Um, So I hope you've had a big start to 2020 and uh, have mapped out um, or put some goals in place for your writing for the rest of the year, even if they're small. You can always build on them. So where do we find you online, Al? 
You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find the show notes over at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.